Hello, Marcus here, and welcome to the show. So I'm really excited for you to hear more about Ryan Leaf's incredible, incredible story. And especially for those of you who, like me, have failed epically in the past. Because, listen, Ryan's story really proves that no matter who we are or what mistakes we've made, we should really celebrate our failures. And I guess not just celebrate them, but leverage them and see our failures like the assets that they are. I don't think I've ever done this, but I really actually want to dedicate this show to all of you out there who lost your shorts back in 2007, 2008. That was a really tough time, and I 100% celebrate you and your epic failure. And most of all, I really hope that you're proud of however far you've come these last 10 years. And listen, if you haven't yet, I also hope that you're taking life by the gosh darn throat. Okay, on to our show. So anyone can quit their day jobs, start a business, and call themselves an entrepreneur. But the big question is, how do you find, launch, and run a business that leverages your existing skills and talents so that you can reach your financial goals and live life on your own terms? That is the big question, and this podcast will give you the answer. I'm Marcus Mora, and I've helped hundreds of entrepreneurs find, launch, and run multi-million dollar businesses. Now my mission is to help you find yours. Welcome to Born to Run. In 1998, Washington State quarterback Ryan Leaf was on top of the world. He was on the cover of Sports Illustrated alongside Peyton Manning, talking about who was going to be the best quarterback coming into the NFL draft. Now, as football fans know, Ryan and Peyton would lead the NFL draft that year, and Peyton would go number one, and Ryan would be picked number two by the San Diego Chargers. Instantly after the draft, Ryan goes from a poor college student whose parents could barely afford the suit he wore to the NFL draft to immediate stardom, immediate fame, and more importantly, a contract worth tens of millions of dollars. Now, in his first preseason game, Ryan faces off against his childhood idol, Steve Young and the 49ers. And it's a game that Ryan would never forget. Imagine, imagine the first game you play against is against uh, Super Bowl champion Steve Young. You know, yeah. Um, he was also a client of my agents, so we we had similar ties. And I did you talk to him before the game? Did you have a relationship with him? We had practices during the week uh, against them. Okay. We sometimes you practice against other teams in the preseason. So of course we didn't spend too much time with, but of course we know each other. When Lee was soliciting me as a client, he had all his big name clients call me. So Steve Young, Troy Aikman, Drew Bledsoe. You you should work with Lee. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and so I'd spoken to him before and then sure enough, you know, after the game, you know, I played really well. I was, you know, I was 60% completion percentage. It was an amazing game. Yeah. Yeah. And we beat him. Yeah. But it's the preseason. You know, the preseason is is meaningless. I didn't realize it yeah, at the time. Yeah, but you, I, I guarantee you that felt incredible, no, it felt great. right? There's a, I, have, I have this wonderful picture of him and me post-game and him just kind of like a bigger big brother kind of smashing down the top of my shoulder pads and this huge grin on my he face. He was proud of you. Yeah, and it was a huge grin on my face and I felt uh, accomplished and... And and where I need, I mean, there's some real moments during my NFL career where I am 
literally that six-year-old boy meeting their heroes in a ton of stuff, right? When I was supposed to be their peers competing against them. And that's a, that's a slippery slope to, to navigate when, uh, when you're trying to be their peer. You know, Dan Marino I was playing against, John Elway, all these guys I grew up admiring, watching, watching uh, Steve Young, you know, Troy Aikman, all this stuff. And now I was competing against them and supposed to beat them, right? Yeah. Um, and I would just look like a little, I'd be like a little kid looking up to him when we, you know, and I refocus again and say, I need to cut that guy's heart out now. Next. It just seemed out of my reach, even though that was my goal all along was to get there. It just, it felt weird. That sense of being an imposter, of not belonging, stays with Ryan and he starts to struggle and his play becomes erratic. And then on September 20th of 1998, Ryan plays the worst game of his career against the Kansas City Chiefs. In that game, he completes only one of 15 passes for a total of four yards. And in fact, it is after this game that Ryan infamously yells at a reporter during a post-game interview and the video goes viral. Ryan mentioned to me that it was after that video that his career really ended. And he was right. After that horrible performance, Ryan goes from feeling not just out of place or an imposter, but he starts to believe that he is a failure. And in just three years, the Chargers cut their losses with Ryan, and he moves on to play for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers for a little bit, and then the Dallas Cowboys, and eventually he lands with his last team, the Seattle Seahawks. But even before the season starts, Ryan does the unthinkable. This kid who had grown up dreaming of playing the NFL quits. After just three years in the NFL, Ryan decides to just retire. He's only 26 years old. But now even though he's now retired, he's still wealthy with enough money to last a lifetime. But at the same time, he's demonized by the press, the NFL fans, and the NFL pundits who start to label him as the biggest bust in NFL history. And even though Ryan is no longer in the game, he internalizes all of this criticism and he comes to believe again that he indeed failed at his career and at his life. And in 2002, Ryan then turns to Vicodin and things take a dark turn. What about that guy Ryan Leaf from Washington State? Oh, yeah. wow. He's gotta be right. Troubled former quarterback Ryan Leaf has been arrested. Leaf was accused of burglary and drug activity. In a plea deal, he pled guilty to the charges. Former NFL quarterback Ryan Leaf was arrested Friday in his Montana hometown. Ryan Leaf has been arrested for the second time in just four days. This is Leaf's latest mugshot. I'm both humiliated and embarrassed for the situation, not only for myself, especially for my family. Quarterback Ryan Leaf was sentenced to 10 years of probation. The strange story of Ryan Leaf has taken he another turn with a plea deal by customs agents. His career or, was the epitome of a bust. Ryan Leaf has been arrested. Leaf was indicted in May in Canyon, Texas. On June 19th of 2012, Ryan is sentenced to seven years of jail time for felony burglary and criminal possession of a dangerous drug.
Now, you might be wondering why the heck I wanted to interview Ryan in the first place on a podcast all about uh, finding your business and entrepreneurship. Well, here's the reason, and this is a little bit personal, but back in 2007, my business failed and I lost everything. Now, when I say everything, I mean everything. Uh, my wife and I were left with one car, which was later repossessed, and we even had to move in with my wife's parents and started the process of just starting over and reinventing myself. Now, at that time, I wasn't the only one who got caught in the mortgage meltdown financial crisis of 2007, not even close. I mean, I was one of millions of people who lost their jobs, their businesses, and their homes. But for some reason, it didn't feel that way. Regardless of the financial carnage all around me, I somehow just couldn't shake the feeling that it wasn't just my business that failed, but that I was a failure. And the embarrassing part looking back today is that it took me a ridiculous amount of time to shake that feeling. I spent way too long moping around and thinking that I, there was something wrong with me. And for a while, I, I really did believe that there was. And I, I know, I know, I know, cry me a river, right? I'm not telling you this for sympathy. I'm back to normal, I'm better than ever, in fact. And, I, and I'm actually super thankful for that huge failure in my life back then. I learned so much through that failure, more than I've learned through any of my successes before or after. But I know that for some of you listening to this, you may not be back to normal after you took a misstep, got fired, or failed miserably at building a company like I did. For example, listen, if you are between the ages of 35 and 60, chances are that the financial crisis of 2007 left at least a mark on your life. And the problem is that too many of us see that mark as an ugly scar as opposed to seeing it as a badge of honor. So this podcast episode with Ryan is for all of us who failed epically. Uh, it's especially for those of us who are still holding on to those failures. Because I wish that back then, somebody had grabbed me by the collar, slapped me around and told me to get over myself and start to see my failure as a badge of honor. And I wish that somebody had told me that no matter how hard I fell flat on my face, that there are thousands of other people who have fallen from way greater heights and have now risen from far darker depths. And the funny thing is that as Ryan and I settled in to get ready for our interview, I lead the interview with this long rambly question about how to deal with failure. I'm rambling because I'm already feeling really sheepish about even trying to compare my little tiny business failure to what Ryan had to overcome. So what is the state of mind? How do you let go of that feeling of going through failure, going through that and, and turning it around? What was the process for you to go from where you were to where you are today? For me, it ended up being going to prison. Somebody convinced me to be start being of service to other people, where I actually removed myself from the equation, where it had nothing to do with me anymore. And it's still an ongoing process, right? I, I still have to be faced with it constantly uh, of what people consider me being a failure at, at what I... Incredible. It's the 1% of the 1%, yet I was viewing myself as this utter failure, and I believed everybody what everybody had to say about it. And that drug me down, down, down until I... Uh, ultimately got up and, and dusted myself off and, and made these changes in the, uh, by making different choices in my life. And so 
that for me was huge. And it, it, it can, it can weigh people down for forever. It can take you into a depression that you cannot get out of unless you're willing to ask for help and really take an honest look about what, what this is all about. This is your pride. This is, this is a you issue. This isn't anybody else issue, right? Yeah. No, no one's spending time at night thinking about you and you lo- losing your business. That's right. In 2008. Yeah. No and one was sitting at home thinking about how Peyton Manning was a better pick than I was in the NFL draft. They're just nobody not. cared anymore. No. Yeah. Yeah. Except for people that just have nothing to do but, um, right. Anonymous messages on poster or on message boards or yeah. you know talking heads on TV, which is their job. That's, that's their job. That's right. their job to do right. it. Uh, their job isn't to influence me to um, try to make a positive change in my life. That's uh-huh. not that's not their job. You talk about uh, in your story that somebody that was very influential for you was your cellmate. Can you talk a little bit about that relationship? Uh, yeah, he was, uh, I don't, ended up being a guardian angel of sorts for me. You know, he was a Afghan Iraqi war veteran. Um, he'd done something a lot of people have done. Um, and that's drive drunk. Mm-hmm. Uh, he just, he happened to kill somebody that night and he'd been in there since he was 23. He was, I think 31 at the time. So eight years he'd been in there and, you know, I watched him try to better himself all the time. He'd made amends for what he'd done. He, he was doing what what I just said to you, he was controlling what he could control. Right. And he'd had enough of my, you know, attitude one day. And he just Mm -hmm. simply uh, said I had my head buried in the sand and that I didn't understand the value uh, that I had, not only for the men in there, but for when I got out. Was it, was it a a gradual conversation or was it really like there was a day where he set you down and said, Ryan, really that, that was, it was, it was an actual conversation. Yeah, it was a, it was a, he was pissed. You know, he was pissed at, um, like a lot of people probably are at me for what they would consider having it all. You know, even in a prison atmosphere, he still viewed me as somebody who had a lot of value. And you couldn't see it at all. And I just, I couldn't see it at all. And, you know, he suggested we go down and, and help prisoners who didn't know how to read learn how to read. And I don't know why I went. I wasn't necessarily willing, but I didn't. I didn't object. I went. Um, I had no idea what was about to transpire uh, and moving forward for me, and what it ultimately came to be for me. So that's why I, I that's why I essentially kind of call him a guardian angel because I don't know where I would be. Um, I definitely wouldn't have asked for parole. Um, I would probably still be there. I was on a seven-year sentence. My um, my sentence is up on March 30th, so 15 days from now is when. No way. So when my sentence should be up. So, um, and what you said is that you you would have just lived it out. Yeah. At that point, I thought I was doing everybody a favor. That's incredible. You know, I thought I was doing everybody a favor. My community, my family. Have you been able to stay in touch with him? Yeah. In fact, I'm headed to Nashville next week, where he lives. He got out. He did. He got out like a month after me. Um, there were like 88 men on our block, our cell block, whatever they call it, and uh, 86 of which have either gotten out. Or never gotten out, and have come back. Right. There's two of us that have remained out, and that's me and him out of the 88. Out of the 88, that's yeah. it. And that's why I say we're the exception. The rule is, you go to prison, you get out, you go back. That's the rule. Unless right. you change your life 180 degrees. Right. And that's what he did. Uh, he he used his GI Bill, and he's going to Lipscomb University in Nashville, and he's an engineering. Uh, 
engineering major. And no way. So yeah, I'm gonna see him next week. My family and I are going down to Nashville for my father's 70th birthday party uh, as a family, and he lives there. So we're gonna we're gonna spend some time with him, and yeah, just really grateful for for him being in my life, and and I'm I'm really happy to hear that uh, he's doing well as well. Interesting how uh, I don't know as as men there's. I don't know. He can kind of one hand the, the the men and women that affected our lives, right? I mean, I and I tell my kids all the time that um, that it's hard to come by men that we can look up to, men that change our lives. Um, but you always talked about you. You took, spoke, spoke to our franchisees. You always talked about your dad as somebody that was that that man to you, right? right. He he was always an amazing inspiration to you. Yeah, he always has been. But I think I think most. For most children, your father is, unless, of course, there's some traumatic experience that goes along with yeah, why that uh, wouldn't absolutely. be the case, right? right? So I think that's always the case. But I also think it may have been detrimental at times for me because I was always worried about making him proud. I didn't realize that he was proud. Right? He didn't need a son to be a famous football player. He just needed a son to be at peace and content with his life. Yeah. Right? And have an understanding of how to treat people and, and do the right thing. But even when you were playing, did you still feel like you needed to, to, that you were not impressing dad at that point still? No, I never thought I was never impressing him. I always thought that was my, that's where I was. That was your goal. Striving to, is to make yeah. him proud. Um, there wasn't ever a time that he wasn't proud of me. Yeah. You know, but I still was like striving to, you know, it was, and I loved football. I wasn't doing it for him, but I loved that post-game hug from him and knowing that I had, you know, he was that important of a, of a person in my life. Ryan credits his cellmate with saving his life, and he credits teaching prisoners how to read as the turning point in his life. And he also credits Ellen DeGeneres with keeping him alive while he served his time. See, while in prison, Ryan would watch The Ellen Show on his little tiny TV every day, and the TV was at the foot of his bed. And after Ryan got released, he actually gets to meet Ellen. We were at the the Super Bowl a few months earlier, like a Mm -hmm. month earlier, and I had mentioned to a friend of mine who was a reporter that I used to watch Ellen's show uh, while in prison. And especially in, at times of need for me when that was, I was in the need of humanity to right. feel um, something. Because you just, you try to turn everything off in there and not feel anything. And uh, he interviewed me and apparently one of her producers got a hold of it. And before I knew it, I was I was called to be on her show. And uh, what a wonderful experience to meet somebody who had such a impactful um at an impactful time in your life uh, that helped transition me and it was great to meet her and and her her reach is unbelievable she surprised us and donated money to our foundation that's right and then we started receiving calls from all over the world not just the u.s but all over the world australia new zealand uh, all those places uh people who were donating and people who were reaching out asking for help so it was uh she did a a unbelievable uh, act of service herself that day and the donations were to your foundation. You want to talk a little about the foundation? Yeah, it's uh, the Focused Intensity Foundation. Uh, it was started back before I even went to prison. cool thing about this story is that while I was in prison, my father kept it afloat. He knew that his son at some point was going to be healthy enough to do good for others, and he kept it afloat. He kept paying the IRS fees, the everything in line, the Wait, compliance. Wait, so you started this foundation before going to prison? Yeah. Really? Yeah, and... Uh, because it's what I wanted to do. Because I was sober at the time. Uh, 
I got diagnosed with a brain tumor, and and when I went through the process of uh, the radiation and all that, the doctor prescribed me some pain meds, and I just instead of mentioning to him that I had a past with them, I uh, I felt I deserved it or I was owed it, mm-hmm. and. You know, four months later from when he gave me that first pill, I was in a jail cell. So that's right. how quickly it it dissipated. But the foundation was settled and set, and my father knew that it was gonna it was gonna save lives someday. And hell, I may end up saving my life, and I think it does in a way that's where right. I'm being of service to others. And now it's just it's uh, it's a pretty unique um, arm for us that when others reach out who can't afford, it, I don't want anybody else out there who who uh, wants to change their life for the better, not be able to do it simply because they can't afford it. If you haven't, go and watch Ryan's interview on Ellen on YouTube. Search for Ryan Leaf and Ellen and it'll pop up on YouTube. It's a really cool clip and really touching. Now, the foundation that Ryan talks about is the Focused Intensity Foundation, and it's a nonprofit that Ryan created with his father to help cover the costs for people who truly want to overcome their addictions. Uh, you can learn more about the cause at focusedintensity.org. Again, that's focusedintensity.org. And Ryan has continued to find ways to serve. He shares his incredible turnaround story with thousands of addicts and at risk youth throughout the country. Since our interview, Ryan continues to speak all over the country. He's also been able to host the Rich Eisen Show, and he has his own show on SiriusXM. He's also a frequent contributor and sportscaster on ESPN and the Pac-12 Network. But what Ryan is really excited about right now, and I am really excited about it too, is his new docuseries currently in production called Busts. The show will feature Ryan interviewing some of sports' biggest blunders. And if you'd like to learn more about Ryan or find out when his show comes out, you can follow Ryan on Instagram and Twitter at Ryan D. Leaf. Again, that's Ryan D. as in David Leaf. And thank you so, so much for listening to our show. You can subscribe to our show anywhere you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a review. It's your reviews that will help us reach more people who might be searching for their callings and allow us to document and tell more stories of amazing entrepreneurs. If you want to send us a tweet, it's at Born to Run It. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Just search for our show, Born to Run It. And if you enjoyed this or any of our episodes, I promise we won't be mad at you for sharing our show on social media using the hashtag borntorunit. Our show is edited by the wonderful Deanna Mejia. I'm Marcos Mora, and you've been listening to Born to Run It. Born to Run It.